Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, Republican candidate for president Vivek Ramaswamy talks about his plan to dismantle the federal bureaucracy as we know it. I think this is the first time we have a number of presidential candidates all at the same time running on a platform that emphasizes attacking government corruption and the persistent federal bureaucracy. There's Democrat Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Republicans Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy has perhaps the most aggressive plan for dismantling the federal bureaucracy and its corruption. Win or lose, these voices definitely are shaping the terms of the debate. I recently caught up with Ramaswamy in Iowa. Can you give me just a thumbnail sketch of your background for people who aren't familiar with it? Sure. My parents came to this country with no money 40 years ago. In a single generation, I've gone on to found multiple multi-billion dollar companies. Did it while marrying my wife, Apoorva. She is a successful surgeon at Ohio State, raising our two sons, Karthik and Arjun, and following our faith. And that's the American dream. My companies span multiple different sectors. One of them was a biotech company called Royvent that developed a number of medicines. Five of them are FDA-approved therapies today that I had the privilege of overseeing. After I stepped down from Royvent, I wrote a series of books. One was called Woke Inc. about stakeholder capitalism in America. One was called Nation of Victims about the spread of victimhood culture in this country. And then the third one, Capitalist Punishment, was about the rise of the ESG movement in capital markets. That then intersected with the other major business that I've founded in recent years called Strive Asset Management, that competes with the likes of BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard by offering index funds that vote their shares and engage with companies, telling them not to focus on environmental or social agendas, but to focus on products for profit. And that's something that's been something of a success for a young company at such an early stage of its life as well. But I realized that I couldn't change this country and drive a true national revival just through the market, just as an entrepreneur or just by writing these books. I think what we actually need is a revival of our national character itself. And I think the best way I'm going to be able to do that is as our next U.S. president, which is what I'm running for and expect to serve as for the next eight years. Let's talk about um, what is your plan for greatly reducing what some people might call the bureaucratic Yes. You know, morass that we have today. We have many names we could apply to it. The fourth branch of government, the administrative state, the regulatory state, the deep state. But it is the unconstitutional existence of policymakers that were never elected to policy positions. Those are the people that work in those three-letter government agencies, from the FDA to the FTC to the SEC to the FBI to the EPA, that alphabet soup. 
That's really what's draining the lifeblood out of our constitutional republic. The regulations coming from there all also act like a wet blanket on the entire U.S. economy. And one of the things that I'm getting in there to do is to shut down most of that apparatus, lay off 75% of the employees who work in that federal bureaucracy by the end of my first term, rescind, starting on day one, a majority, over 50% of federal regulations that I believe are unconstitutional today, and further reorganize and even shut down many of those agencies that should not exist. Now, the conventional wisdom is that a U.S. president can't do this without Congress. That's wrong. The president actually has existing statutory authority to take these steps under limited circumstances. They told Trump, for example, that you can't fire large numbers of employees because of civil service protections. Well, read the law. The civil service protections only protect against individual employee firings. They don't protect against mass headcount reductions. Mass headcount reductions are absolutely what I'm bringing to the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy. There are unexpired sections of the 1977 Presidential Reorganization Act that say under limited circumstances, if you're stimulating the economy, or if for that matter, you're reducing redundant agencies, the president already has existing authority to shut them down and reorganize the federal government accordingly. So from the FBI to the U.S. Department of Education to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to other branches of government or other branches of the administrative state, I'll be shutting them down using executive authority to do it and on strong legal principled constitutional foundations. And I think I'm the only person in this race or in frankly modern presidential history who has offered that level of clarity on how we'll actually get that done. Two follow-ups. Wouldn't firing that many people create some kind of economic crisis? To the contrary, actually. That's the source of the regulations that are holding back and shackling the rest of the U.S. economy. Take the Department of Interior shackling the U.S. energy sector. By the time I'm done, we will be drilling more, fracking more, using more coal, embracing more nuclear energy in this country than we are right now. That's one of the keys to our economic revival. Here's the other thing. One of the major obstacles to many businesses right now, small and large, is finding employees to fill vacant positions. So if you're moving large numbers of employees out of the federal government, well, great. That's all two problems at once in many ways. They can find honest work in the private sector where there are more job openings than there are people looking for work today. So this is going to be one of the keys to reigniting our economy. And that's what I expect to do as the next president. I saw a stat in the last year or two that indicated most people either work for a government entity or know somebody who does. How are you going to get enough votes among the people who would be hit by your plans? I think many of them may honestly agree with me, but I can't speak for them. What I will speak for is my own views. The job of the U.S. federal government is not to provide employment in the government. It is to actually create a thriving country, including an economy where people can prosper in realizing their own version of the American dream. And if that path to the American dream runs through federal employment, then we have a deeper problem in this country. That is a deep problem we have. It's the one I'm going in to solve. So we will do it with compassion, with respect, treating people with dignity. But we will also do it in a way that restores the integrity of our constitutional republic. And I'll also be very frank. In most organizations, including the federal government, 25% of the people get 90% of the work done. It's just a fact. Well, I think that in the federal bureaucracy, we will preserve and even improve its effectiveness by getting that other 75% out of the way. Not because they're bad people, but because it's a bad government when it behaves in the way that it does today. 
Prior to Republicans winning the House of Representatives, they promised that if they won, they would do something immediately and very strong to handle CDC, the mistakes that it made, the misinformation that it put out during COVID. Nothing really meaningful has happened. We're now facing more talk about a COVID resurgence, masking, mandates. What do you make of that and, and what's your position on it? My position on it is a lot of times with the Republican Party, we see a lot of talk and no action. Actions speak louder than words, but it's going to take somebody who's an executive outside of government who also actually has a deep understanding of the law and the constitution of this country to be able to see that through. That's part of what gives me my sense of purpose in this race. A lot of these other Republicans are good people. They believe in incremental reform, though, tinkering around the edges of the administrative state putting Betsy DeVos, a good person, on top of the Department of Education and say, go reform it. It doesn't work that way. We have to be willing to get in there and shut it down. The Department of Education is on my list to shut down. The CDC is on my list to also shut down. And I think that's how we revive the true purpose and integrity of what the government was supposed to be doing in the first place. But incremental reform is actually a formula for, in some ways, the worst of all worlds, where you give people the appearance and expectation that something's going to get done. When, in fact, you're in an even worse situation than you thought you were signing up to be in. The Department of Education is larger and spends more money now than it ever has. The CDC's overreach has now become part of a pattern of precedent that we've set in this country as they're taking further steps in that direction. That's what changes on my watch. And you're right. There's elements of it that some people might find frightening at first. I don't think it's frightening at all. I think the status quo is what's frightening. But yes, it does give people pause to say, I'm going to lay off 75% of the federal employees, shut down government agencies that shouldn't exist. Yes, I will. Is there something that's fundamentally different about that than the status quo? Yes, there is. But that's what's going to be required or else you just get what the traditional grand old party has delivered is really memorized slogans from 1980 that when recited to a present that's actually very different than 1980, fall flat and don't deliver real change. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Did you say something like you're the only Republican candidate who's not bought and paid for? Certainly, I was the only person on that stage for whom that was true and in a meaningful sense of that word. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean for that is, look, let's just get really honest. Let's level. One of the things in question somebody asked me early in this campaign is, how do you know you're not just saying what your biggest donor told you to say? And I said, you know what? That's the way the game works. I am my biggest donor. I put over 15 plus million dollars of our family's hard-earned money into this campaign and Through the end of this campaign, I am fully confident I will remain our campaigns and our entire efforts single largest donor. 
So by definition, I'm not bought and paid for by anybody else. The other candidates in this race, it's not their fault. It's the fault of a broken system. It's really a habit of super PAC puppetry that we have in the Republican Party. The super PAC game, it's a farce. We say there's $3,300 limits on donating to a primary when other people are writing eight-figure checks to their chosen little puppet that they view as their vehicle for advancing their agendas. That's wrong. I think the America First movement should embrace the principle of keeping mega money out of politics. But unfortunately, that's the way the game is played today. You see reports leaks every week, many of them relating to candidates opposing me. Super PACs releasing binders of talking points to their candidates about how they're supposed to criticize me. And the sad part is if the other candidates on their own wanted to have policy disagreements with me, I embrace that. That's a good thing for the Republican Party and for the country. But it's not a good thing when a major $100 plus million super PAC hands over talking points largely of made-up nonsense to tell their chosen candidate to say about me that are actually false. That's puppetry. It's not good for us. It's not good for our party. It's not good for the country. And I think the Republican Party has an opportunity to lead the way to say that we actually are the party that now wants to keep the influence of corrupt mega money out of politics. And I'm happy to lead the way on that. If I understand correctly, you made a great deal of your fortune in the pharmaceutical-related industries. That's correct. How do you posit yourself as somebody who's not a pharmaceutical industry insider with the interests of big pharma? Well, first of all, I understand how the game is played. But the second of all, you got to look at the details of the companies I've built. Calling my biotech company and calling me because of that part of big pharma is like the equivalent of calling Rumble part of big tech just because it's creating a competitor to YouTube. And I say this as somebody who was an early investor as a private company in Rumble before it staged as a public company today, because I believe in challenging incumbents through the market. I founded Strive to compete against BlackRock to fight the ESG movement. We offer index funds, but the whole point is to actually offer a different alternative. Well, I took on the bureaucracy of Big Pharma too. One of the problems with Big Pharma is that they have soft coordination to say that there's certain therapeutic areas where they've just decided they're going to abandon it. And the FDA drives a lot of these decisions in the shadow of their decisions too. I view it as corrupt. But what I said is, you know what? Many of those medicines do deserve to be developed, even though pharma had abandoned them. One of them, it wouldn't be an approved therapy today if it weren't for me and the company that I founded. I'm proud of that. It was a life-saving therapy in kids, where 100% of kids who are born with a genetic disease, if they're not treated, they're left to die by the age of three. 100% of them. And now a majority of those kids, if they're treated, have opportunities to live lives of normal duration. I'm proud of that, as well as the drug for prostate cancer or women's health conditions that had been ignored, like endometriosis or uterine fibroids. Yes, I'm proud of that. But that's my taking on the bureaucracy of big pharma. I then took on the bureaucracy of the ESG industrial complex. I've taken on big tech through my writings and some of the other investments that I've made. But now I'm going in to take on the biggest bureaucracy of all. That is the bureaucracy in our federal government. I'm battle tested. I have a track record of success. That's frankly what it's going to take for somebody who's up for this task, not somebody who's grown up within the business of reading talking points from a binder from GOP consultants. That's not going to get the job done. Let's say you're elected president. What are the first executive actions you'd like on your desk? Well, first thing is I want to rescind a lot of the old executive actions that have been wrongfully taken. Take executive order 11246, an executive order that created race-based quotas in the private sector that require any government contractor, that's 20% of the U.S. workforce working for such a company, 
required to adopt these toxic racial quota systems. I'll take a pen and cross it out. Something that no president has actually had the spine to do. I've pushed some of them on why they didn't do it. They said it's not a political hill we wanted to die on. Well, I don't hide from political battles if it's on the right side of what's good for this country. But one of the things I want to get started on very early on is cutting the size of the federal employee headcount. That 75% headcount reduction, we're going to get started on day one. Shutting down agencies like the U.S. Department of Education, we'll put that into motion starting on day one. In my capacity as commander-in-chief, beginning to seal the southern border, including using resources from our military to do it, that's something we're going to start on on day one. These are solvable problems, but what we need is a president with a combination of the spine to actually execute it and the first personal knowledge of the law and the Constitution to actually do it, as opposed to getting duped by the advisor class in Washington, D.C. They'll provide all the reasons why we can't do it. I think that's one of the differences between me and even President Trump is that Trump was duped by those advisors. I won't be because I'm probably the only presidential candidate in this century who has, maybe even longer, who has written books that have been quoted in federal appellate court cases relating to modern constitutional law. Yes, I have a first personal understanding that will allow me to stand on principled footing when we see this through. You called President Trump the best or greatest president of the 21st century. Yep. Which really only means better than Bush and Obama. And Biden. And Biden. <laughs> yeah. Where does he stand if you count the 20th century presidents in your mind? Well, I think that, they, I mean, look, you're then entering a different era. And one of the things I often say is, as Lincoln said, the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The challenges we faced in 1980 are different than the challenges we face in the year 2023. So I think Trump was unambiguously a great president. No doubt about it. But we can't just aspire to normalcy. We have to aspire to excellence. And to take our America First agenda to the next level, we're going to have to reunite this country. And I think I can reunite this country in a way that no other candidate, not just Trump, but any other candidate in this race, no other candidate can. That's why I'm in this race. We're reaching young people, bringing them along in droves. I'm the youngest person ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. I'm doing it as somebody who has lived the full arc of the American dream and can speak to that. You're 38, right? I'm 38. And I'm not moved by vengeance and grievance. I'm moved by gratitude to this country. This country has given me so much more than I have a right to claim as my own. That's what moves me. To give back to the country and more importantly to the next generation the opportunities that my wife Apoorva and I had in this country. We want to create a country, we used to say that was the same country we grew up in, and we don't say that anymore. A country greater than the one we grew up in. I believe that's possible. But that's going to take somebody who actually has a vision, who's running to something, not just someone who's running from something. And I think that's what's unique about me in this race. If President Trump were to come at some point and tap you on the shoulder and say, would you serve under a Trump administration or would you run with me would you consider either of those things? So here's what I would tell them. I think that we're going to have to work together, all of us, to revive this country and play our respective roles. And I would love to work with him. The capacity I see it is that I'll be the next president. That'll put me in a position to reunite this country. But especially during that first year in office, he will undoubtedly be my most trusted mentor and advisor in the White House. That's, I think, the relationship we need to have. That'll put me in a position to win in a landslide, to reunite this country, but also make sure we don't have a standing start and understand where he left off so we can take that America first agenda far further under my watch. Have you talked with President Trump? I've talked to all of the candidates during the race. I've talked to most of the others more recently uh, since that was at the debate. 
and afterwards, but I have not talked to Trump since the debate. Would you pardon President Trump if you got elected? And I think you've made a statement about some of the January 6th suspects. So I'm going to pardon on day one, not on the last day, which is what many presidents wait for. On day one, anyone in this country who has been a victim of a politically motivated persecution or prosecution. How do I define that? If someone else under similar circumstances would not have been prosecuted or was not prosecuted, that's evidence of a politically motivated prosecution if it's based on political views. So take Julian Assange. He sits in a foreign prison in exile while Chelsea Manning, the government official who leaked to Julian Assange, had her sentence commuted by President Obama because she's transgender. That's a disparate standard. Julian Assange gets a day one pardon. Take Douglas Mackey, who made a meme that made fun of Hillary Clinton supporters, now facing a long prison sentence, when Christina Wall, a comedian who did the exact same thing in reverse to Trump supporters, completely roams free and her posts still reside on social media. That's wrong. Douglas Mackey gets a pardon. Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden gets a pardon under my watch. Now, that would be technical about the terms we use. He would get clemency. He hasn't been prosecuted. But I think that exposing the constitutional fla- const- unconstitutionally flagrant violations of a government, especially after he has already served in some ways for taking that risk, deserves to finally move on with his life. And so our country can move on with our own national life. And yes, in that category, Donald Trump absolutely will get a day one pardon under my watch because these are politically motivated persecutions. And my standard is how do we move our nation forward? That's what I'm focused on. So on January 20th, that's what I'll be doing. Restore one standard of the rule of law, put into motion shutting down the FBI, such that on January 21st, I'm not worried about the Trump family or the Assange family. I'm worried about every American family. But we have to get that right on January 20th, my first day, so that on January 21st, we can start on the rest of the agenda. You can watch Vivek Ramaswamy's interview on Full Measure Sunday, September 17th, the first in a series of Full Measure interviews of the 2024 candidates. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave a review, subscribe to it and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, and I hope you're watching our new season, the ninth year of Full Measure. For a station list, you can go to CherylAckeson.com Click the Full Measure tab and you'll see a list of stations and times. Now you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking the Store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.